Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is part two of our wrap-up of a story by John V. Marsh, the second novella in the trilogy of novellas or novel called The Fifth Head of Cerberus. In this episode, we'll be looking at the puzzles and mysteries and unresolved questions that we've hopefully set up with our last episode's discussion of the themes of the story. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to lay our cards on the table here regarding the two biggest questions that people leave this story with. Certainly, when we started this one, I did not expect that I was going to become obsessed with the philosophy of time or that I was going to need to be thinking about, I don't know, every single piece of literature from Plato to Kipling. It's been absolutely dizzying covering this story. I mean, in a good way, but it's also been a little bit exhausting. Our next episode is going to jump right into VRT, and and that is going to come out on time. But because we record months in advance here in our time stream, we are going to take a little bit of a break from this book. We're going to, I don't know, clear our heads a little bit and and work on some other projects. And uh, in fact, the next thing we're going to record is one of our monthly Patreon episodes. That's right. That episode is the runner up from our first patron poll on the stories our patrons voted on for us to cover. The story is called Three Million Square Miles. It is a Gene Wolfe story, and uh, it is blessedly short, so it'll be a nice little break from from covering these uh, really deep and dense things that Wolfe is cramming into Fifth Head of Cerberus. Yeah, I'm not even sure we know how to handle a short story anymore, but I guess we'll find <laughs> out next week. Well, and on the note of massive, sprawling stories, we have our work cut out for us tonight. So let's jump straight into these puzzles, these mysteries, and and mostly really what are unresolved questions. The first one, which is probably the biggest one, is when did the Shadow Children first come to St. Anne? And the other side of that question then is, who has arrived at the end of the story. Who is it that has splashed down in the ocean? There are a number of possibilities. There's also maybe a number of ways to go through this. I mean, the maybe most obvious way to do this would be for us to just lay our cards on the table, stake out our positions. But I think it's actually going to be more fruitful if we do this more as an assessment of what the possibilities are, evaluating those claims and and the merits of them, and then see where we fall. Right. And I think that's an important methodology as well, because when we get to the end of our discussion today, we're going to be talking about what even this story is, whether it's a fictional or true, or true in the world of Fifth Head, and, and what's going on with the metatextuality. Yeah, and that's going to be the puzzle question that we wrap up with here tonight, kind of a, a bookend here, these two biggest ones. So I think let's just get started on this. On the question of the Shadow Children and their existence on St. Anne, there are maybe three broad categories of answers here. One is that they came from Earth. The other is they came from another planet that is not Earth, but that is also not St. Anne. And and then the other possibility is that they're indigenous to St. Anne. But I think let's start with the idea that they came from Earth. And we see this 
as a claim in the text, it seems to be something that the shadow children themselves are saying. They certainly say that they are human. Uh, They describe this yellow gem in the tail of the constellation fighting lizard as their home. And while they never call that Earth or say that's the solar system, uh, I think that's heavily implied. It's something anyway that Wolf wants readers to infer. They also have this list of places that they think that they might actually be from. And and these are all uh, places on Earth or invented by humans. There still might be some some difficulties with that, but that seems to be sort of the broad evidence for shadow children came from Earth. And I think the real question here is whether or not they came a long, long time ago or whether or not they came recently, which is a question that is itself in the text. Maybe let's just start with them coming a long, long time ago. Brandon, what is some of the evidence that you see for the shadow children coming from Earth at a time that predates human historical records? What's really complicated this notion of a long, long time ago for me is the subjective, the subjective relationship that the shadow children have with time as a result of the drug use. When Sand Walker asks how long they live for, the response is, what does it matter? We experience everything, you know, from the heights, the highest heights to the lowest lows in our lifetime. So what is time is a kind of question that they're asking. Um, so I think we need to look for other evidence in the story that for me is just not quite there to support a long, long time ago in the uh, George Lucas sense of the phrase. And this list, although this is something that people will marshal as evidence in support of this idea, this list includes uh, a name of a place from a fantasy novel written in the 1920s. So no one from Gondwana land or Atlantis, even if, if Atlantis is a real place, is going to know of Poitem. Uh, also, someone from Atlantis isn't going to call that place Atlantis. Someone from Gondwana land isn't going to call that place Gondwana land. Uh, there's no there's no Texas. These are all names that would only be in the head of someone who was born after 1920. Yeah, that's my reading for sure. Well, there are a couple other pieces of evidence that are used in support of this. One, you know, they they do claim to have undergone a serious physiological change and that sounds like it could perhaps be an evolutionary process and, and therefore require some great length of time, right? They say that they look very different, that their physiology is very different from what it was when they arrived on St. Anne from Earth. That's one thing. There is also this line of poetry, there this, this song lyric that we get that describes their arrival. This is something that the uh, old wise one says in the pit. Uh, This is something that uh, lots of readers like to marshal as evidence for the prehistoric arrival of the shadow children. And the line is this, it is like a spark from the echoless vault of emptiness, the shining shape slipped steaming into the sea. When we encounter this in the recap, uh, you know, you took this to be the description of the shadow children landing on St. Anne from the perspective of the abos. I think when people use this as evidence for the prehistoric civilization from Earth, uh, what they point to is that this sounds like the cultural memory of this event, that this is a line that could be found in the Aeneid or the Iliad, any sort of 
ancient type of epic that is meant to recount the experiences of a group of people who participated in the event, but is being narrated from uh, an omniscient, uh, even third person perspective. I don't know if you have any more thoughts about this line. I just want to read the paragraph before this bit of poetry of this epic poetry as you described it so that we can orient ourselves into what's going on. The old wise one is responding to Sandwalker's question about whether or not they can hear the songs of the hill people. Uh, The old wise one says this, I am made of your songs. Once there was a people using their hands when they had hands only to take food. There came among them another who crossed from star to star. Then it was found that the first heard the songs of the second and sent them out again, greater, greater, greater than before. Then the second felt the songs more strongly in all their bones, but touched perhaps by the first. Once I was sure I knew who the first were and the second. Now I am no longer sure. And what we have there is a real confusion of whether the group norm now is made up of Sandwalker's inner life, his consciousness, and his own group's consciousness, because he's a shadow friend and he carries that with him somehow, or the old wise one is still made up entirely of the present shadow children. But this line isn't an extemporaneous composition. This is something that the old wise one or the consciousnesses that are supplying the existence of the old wise one already know, already have memorized. I guess I just don't know what the evidence for the group norm having this memorized is. It doesn't seem out of place in what the old wise one has been saying before. It, it, to me, it just registers as more of his confusion to the point that Sandwalker stops listening to it. He reads it as just nonsense. Nothing of this makes sense to Sandwalker. And so he leaves. So I think it is the literary quality of it, right? There is meter and there's alliteration here. So I think that that suggests, right, that this is a song lyric or that it is a line of poem that is already memorized, but also the way in which he delivers it, which is to mumble to himself after the conversation is over after Sandwalker has walked away from the conversation. So I think that's the evidence, right? There's nothing in the text that says, and now I shall quote from our great epic about whatever. That doesn't happen here in the text. But I do think that the the linguistic evidence suggests that this is a stock phrase, that he is quoting something here. Uh, None of that to me particularly matters. I think what does actually matter to me in, in handling this evidence, which I don't think in any way necessarily suggests that they came from Earth at all or that uh, they came from Earth a long time ago. But I just want to make it clear that what is being described here is not the shadow children landing on St. Anne. What is being described here is the log-like star crosser falling from orbit many years and years after the landing of the thousand splashers, which are the landing vehicles that they use to get from the star crosser to the planet. So this could actually be something that the shadow children themselves do remember and have a song or a poem about. It could be something they composed a couple months ago. It's no evidence of when that was composed, but I just want to make clear that this is is something that the shadow children could have witnessed, even if we assume this is the vehicle that they use to get from another planet to St. Anne. Well, if you can't tell, Brandon does not particularly care for this reading, this notion that the shadow children are a prehistoric group of humans or 
other type of primate from Earth. But I think now let's let's move on to talking about uh, the question of whether or not the shadow children are humans who came from Earth very recently. What are some of the things that you see that would support this claim, Brandon? This is kind of more what I'm leaning towards in in this story. I'm going to use a little bit of like Wolf's logic puzzles, which may be totally bunk, but this is how I kind of went about thinking about this. It's really thinking about the number of generations that we see represented in the story at any given time. And it opens with three generations. The grandmother of Eastwind and Sandwalker is not named. And this could be either because she has not been given a name because names are new. Um, The only people that we have names for are Sandwalker's parents' generation, Old Bloody Finger and Cedar Branches Waving. Also, Last Voice could possibly be included in that. So we only see three generations represented in the story. And the types of stories told about the creatures on the planet, the Just So stories, are revealed to us have been told from Sandwalker by his mother. And it's easy to make the assumption that these stories have been around forever, but there's no evidence for that in the story. We also know on the Marshmen side that at least one sacrifice has taken place in order for this to be a ritual. By that, I mean the sacrifice of the lead, the lead Starwalker, who was last voice. And there's no evidence that this is a ritual that has happened many times when a star falls out of the sky. We know it's happened once, and perhaps that produced some sort of uh, need for uh, sacrifice. And perhaps that could mean that the shadow children as humans came in waves. If the star crosser was in the sky and orbiting for a while, they could have come in multiple timelines. Another sense I have here is that the Abos have lost the ability to shapeshift, but they still have a memory of when their species could. And this is their reverence to trees and their ability to see ghosts and spirits and things like that. So I read this story as the Abos having only been human and imitating humans for a couple of generations, and they only needed to imitate one or two generations of human. And we don't know what happened when the star crosser needed to be abandoned and all the people came down. So that's my kind of thought on the matter. Well, let me go through some of the the textual evidence that I think supports this claim. But before I do that, already apologies for leaving something off in support of the the shadow children are prehistoric humans or prehistoric primates from earth and and this is one of the lines that the old wise one says when he's talking about the drug he says all of us have been warmed by it since we were very young and so clearly this means that all of these people were born on saint anne or at the very least were children when they arrived that doesn't necessarily have to mean they've been here for uh 10 million years or something but it is marshaled in support of that Right. We don't know. We know the effect of the drug is radical on these people. And I think you're right to say that at least that's another example of only maybe three generations being seen. We see the same three generations in the Shadow Children when Sandwalker encounters them for the first time. He sees children. He sees people who 
could be older, and he sees people who are old. For me, this is all over the text, this max three generations being present, though that's probably all that's present at any given time in general. I think it's a little bit more meaningful here because they are always presented in that way, and that's not necessary unless you're trying to, because people would make that assumption anyway. You don't need to kind of obscure it the way that Wolf does, I think, in the text. Yeah, I don't really know that it's obscured. I mean, as you say, if we went to one of our family reunions right now, we would also probably only have three generations there. You and I have been friends for more than a decade. We have talked about each other's grandparents. We've never talked about each other's great-grandparents. It's just not something that comes up. Three generations is kind of uh, how life exists, how life functions. And I don't know that Wolf is doing anything to obscure that. I think it would actually be more strange to have uh, Sandwalker walking around talking about his his great-grandfather or his great-grandmother. To me, I think that would be weirder. But you do point to something that I think is really important, a bit of evidence for the notion of the shadow children coming from Earth very recently, which is the significant effect that this drug clearly has on them. So this physiological change might not have anything to do with an evolutionary process and might be completely the result of this drug use, which might be the effect that that drug is going to have on any person who takes that drug over a very long period of time, over over a lifetime, say, or even just a number of years. This could also be an instance of uh, Lamarckian evolution in which the environmental circumstances and also the lifestyle choices and habits of parents can affect the, the physiology of offspring. I think those are things that might be happening here. Frankly, I think they're more likely to be the things that are happening here. Right. And I think that's clear to me in the way that the the description of the abos is like, sagging drooping skin and like runny eyes and nose and all this stuff like and they all look aged and old even the young ones you can't tell them apart and wisps of hair this to me the drug is making this to me indicates that the drug is making physical as well as mental changes in the characters and to be more clear the sagging skin to me could indicate just a shrinking bone structure as you take the drugs just a few more things that support this claim one they speak like us they share our concepts about history anthropology biology and also cosmology i mean they know what history is they know what political revolutions are and they know that they're born in prisons or at least all of the great ones are i mean that is someone from the mid 20th century speaking. And also, even though these present shadow children were born on St. Anne or arrived very young, as we just talked about, they still possess stories about human knowledge, right? They know about the end of the cosmos. They know about prehistoric humans and the dawn of civilization. Uh, And again, these history and and political movements. Uh, We might also wonder where the names John and Mary come from, if they're not coming from humans who use those names. Uh, And finally, there's this piece of evidence that still quite puzzles me, which is the French spelling of Egret in the text. This to me seems like a clue that everyone is speaking French. Yeah, I I really agree with that. I think you really hit on something with the John and Mary names. And that goes to our final discussion of the text, our our last episode, not a wrap-up episode, where I suggested that the species of shapeshifters, the abos had really different encounters with 
shadow children, the humans, when they landed. And you brought up a great point about the history of colonialism, where the people on the shores were usually uh, met by armies or people who were looking to set up a colony. And the Catholic institution went further in to meet the other people. And so that could also bolster that sort of claim that they met a John and Mary, a missionary couple or a, a, a priest and a nun who went into find intelligent life and tell it about Catholicism. Well, let's very quickly address the notion that the shadow children are not native to St. Anne, but they, they did not come from Earth, that they came from some other planet that we don't know about that's totally fictional, perhaps, in the universe, and that's where the shadow children came from. I'm not sure that there's any specific evidence that supports that claim, but this is something that is a possibility, and I, I wanted to at least acknowledge that. Yeah, the only evidence for me would be that the Shadow Children are somehow mistaken about where they came from and that they actually came from the constellation, the Shadow Child. So that to me is the only real question mark, the only puzzle around that that Wolf leaves hanging. But I think the the importance of the fighting lizard for the Marshmen to see what God sees, to see what goes on there take their imitation of humans maybe to the next level indicates that the Marshmen know where the Shadow Children came from. And as you uncovered very quickly, that Wolf is leaning on tropes of science fiction to reveal that it is our solar system. Yeah, I think we can dispense with this one just as quickly as we've raised it. So let's talk now about whether or not the Shadow Children are indigenous to St. Anne. Let's go through what some of the evidence is that supports that. You know, I would say right off the bat that this confusion about their origins and their relationship with the people who came from the stars, uh, coupled with their certainty that some group did definitely come from the stars and changed the indigenous life, suggests perhaps anyway that they themselves are abos who have been changed. They simply have been changed in a way that is dramatically different or drastically different than the hill people and the marshmen who seem to have more similarities than differences. I think one of the things we can view in support of that claim is the fact that nobody on this planet until the very end uh, really uses tools for any reason. They all get their food the same way. It's hard to understand how Last Voice has opened up the bodies of women. That does suggest some sort of tool use, but perhaps not. But the only use of tools we see at the end is the flogging of Last Voice, where they create a weapon. And this, of course, is put right in contrast with the arrival of the new colonists and the fact that they have their hands open and that's supposed to mean that they have no weapons. They come in peace. But it also says that the Abos didn't know what weapons were. And so it's odd to think of them getting a branch thick enough to flog somebody with and not thinking of it as a tool for violence or something like that. It's very 2001, a space odyssey, really, um, when you're looking at the evolution of tools in, in the movie and how they come to be. Um, it's really interesting. This whole thing about tools, I think, is very fascinating. But I think, for me, the only evidence, as I said, that points to the notion that they are a different adaptation, a different imitation of a life form, is that they all 
take from the earth and don't build. They don't make. One thing I'll say in support of this answer is that I think we take for granted that the hill people and the marshmen are the same species and in fact, very similar, that their differences are only about cultural responses to their environments. And of course, we know that both groups have a real disdain for the shadow children and maybe vice versa. But I actually would suggest that the hill people and the marshmen are as physiologically distinct from each other as they are from the shadow children, although that's not called attention to by anyone in the text the way these distinctions with the shadow children are. Uh, For one thing, uh, the Marshmen don't actually seem to be able to send their consciousnesses to the stars or to have them leave their bodies at all. This is something only the Hill people do. This only becomes clear to us very near the end of the story when we discover that all of the Star Walkers are actually Hill people. There is no indication that there's any uh, reproduction going on between the two groups, sexual reproduction, that these that people from these two groups are making offspring. There's lots of questions about how offspring are even coming. Uh, but I do think that they might be as physiologically distinct from each other as they are, in fact, from the shadow children, and that these really might be three different abo impersonations of some kind of humanoid life form that has come to St. Anne. I'm really on board with the notion that the hill people and the marshmen are physiologically different. They are different imitations of perhaps human beings, as we see in this story. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty committed to the notion that the shadow children are not native to Saint Anne, though. I will say that one possibility is is that um, the marshmen never saw the humans. Uh, people from the Starcrossers take off their appearance to pick it back up. So they could have a totally different appearance that is like they're wearing spacesuits all the time or something like that, that their appearance is so vastly different from what we suspect is kind of the naked form of the human body that the Hill people carry. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and we should also say that we actually don't ever get a description, a detailed description of a marshman we do get a great detailed description of last voice, but he's a hill person. So all of the people we get descriptions of are either shadow children or hill people, never the marshmen. So just to make things clear, Brandon, you are coming down hard on, yes, the shadow children are human beings. They are homo sapiens from earth, but that they came here very recently. You think four or five generations at the most. Yes, that's my belief, though uh, we've complicated uh, my understanding of it to the point where I think anybody could could find holes in it. It is just my preference of reading this story. Well, my preference is that the Shadow Children are also abos. So I think we both dislike a great deal the notion that the Shadow Children are from prehistoric Earth. So I think we can we can move on from that question. And now let's let's get in on the related question of who is it that is arriving here at the very end of the story. A couple different options here. Uh, I guess really a couple different options. They're either French colonists or they're English-speaking colonists. And there's no direct evidence in the text that would allow us to distinguish that, right? The evidence that we get is that Sandwalker doesn't understand the language of these new arrivals, uh, and these new arrivals have the same history of handshaking as Europeans, But Brandon, what is your feeling? Are these French-speaking or are these English-speaking? My belief is that they are English-speaking 
colonists that have been orbiting St. Anne, perhaps, or maybe St. Croix or the binary system, um, but have had no ability to land on it, perhaps through the cloaking of the minds of the shadow children, um, has made it seem like it's an impossible place to be. Uh, But in any event, the speed at which the new colonists arrive indicates to me that they were sort of already there. We know it takes 20 years to get from Earth to St. Anne. We know that it takes significantly less time to get from St. Anne to St. Croix. So it's entirely possible that these are humans who have colonized St. Croix and have somehow got the go-ahead to land on St. Anne. If these arrivals here are English-speaking colonists rather than French-speaking colonists, how does this jive with what we know about the history of human settlements on these two planets from the, the first novella? Right. Well, we know that the settlement has been there for 140 years or so. And we know that there have been early settlements or early attempts to colonize St. Anne. And that's how we learn about the abos and the tools they leave behind, which is Another fascinating thing is that the abos of St. Anne have left tools behind, but we know a lot about their culture and that they've gone extinct. And all that could have happened during the time of the settlement of St. Croix while new colonists were exploring St. Anne. So that's kind of how I try to make a jive. Something that is easily assumed from the fifth head of Cerberus is that St. Anne, which we learn is the more cosmopolitan and the more successful, whatever that might mean, of the two colonies, that has a greater population, bigger cities, it's thriving in ways that we know St. Croix is not. It's easy to make an assumption that the two planets were settled at the same time, that St. Croix and St. Anne were both settled by French-speaking colonists, and that would then make it difficult for these arrivals at, at the end of a story by John V. Marsh to be English-speaking colonists when we don't have any sense that there are French-speaking settlements already on the planet. But that is actually an assumption that is not borne out in the text of Fifth Head. And in fact, I think Wolf is uh, very sly in deliberately never saying that French-speaking colonists settled St. Anne, or that humans have been on St. Anne for as long as they have been on St. Croix. Uh, the original, the, the first people who show up on St. Anne are only ever described as the original terrestrial colonists. So there's no indication that those people necessarily were French-speaking. And there's also not any indication that that settlement, that that colonization happened at the same time as San Croix, even though we do get a timeline of when humans first came to San Croix, uh, how long how long ago that was. We also get information about the second wave of English-speaking colonists who arrive. And we do also learn about the extinction of the Abbas on St. Anne. And we are told that that is something that happened a century ago from the perspective of the characters in the fifth head of Cerberus. But there's not any indication that there was a whole century of humans and Abbas both inhabiting the, the planet. But I think we all assume that when we read the text. Right. And the, the end of a story by John V. Marsh is, to me, a story about the extinction of the Abbas. It's very clearly that's what's going on. And so that would take place, you know, only 
a hundred years ago from the timeline of this novels that we're reading. We know that John Marsh also finds Saint Croix to be uh, stuck in the past and old, and nobody's building anything new. Which, if he's coming from Saint Anne, things are newer there. We know that, and they're building newer things. So, to me, that means it's a more recent settlement that it doesn't have this staid quality of uh, a place locked in time. But also, it could be because it's more it's more recent. It's a paradise of a sort. And if there actually are not any French-speaking colonists on St. Anne, when the English-speaking ship or ships from Earth arrive, some of whom go to St. Croix, many of whom go to St. Anne, the fact that St. Anne is unsettled territory means that these new colonists can build the society they want without confrontation or complications from other people. But that is not true on St. Croix, where we know that even in the Fifth Head of Cerberus, people feel themselves to be of a higher social standing if they can lay claim to being descended from the French colonists rather than the English-speaking colonists, even though it's the English-speaking colonists or their descendants, really, who hold political power today. And that suggests just a high level of, of dysfunction in the social and political workings of saint Croix that perhaps you don't have on saint Anne for those reasons. So I think that your reading that the shadow children are French-speaking humans who perhaps came with the first wave that also inhabited St. Croix, which turned out to be a failure on St. Anne, and no one knew that their descendants were, or they themselves were still living there uh, on this drug, and that no one ever went uh, there to look for them, or if they did, they didn't find them, and that it has been decades since that happened, possibly as many as four generations, perhaps, as you suggest, and that now what's happening is the English-speaking colonists have arrived. They're going to be landing on San Croix, but they're also now landing on St. Anne. I think that that argument totally holds up in the text. Right. I think another piece of evidence here is the fact that Mr. Million is three or four generations removed from number five, and that that is the same kind of, that is about the time when the English-speaking colonists arrived. My sense is that, uh, you know, the Gene Wolf who goes to St. Croix was on the first wave of English colonists. And we can suspect also that because there is a study uh, surrounding the extinction of the Abos and what happened to the first French colonists that were there, that maybe there were things that were left behind, journals, tools, different sorts of things, different sorts of artifacts that have been misinterpreted not only by anthropologists, but have been unknown to, or the use has been undiscovered by the abos who didn't know what a writing instrument or paper was and just let it be. All right. Well, I think we'll we'll say that matter is settled, though we're almost certainly going to find out that everything we think we know about this is completely wrong by the second or third page of VRT. We look forward to that. (laughs) So let's move into a kind of a a, just an offshoot question. And this is about the the shadow children. I just have two questions about the shadow children. And And the first of them is whether or not the shadow children are really keeping space travelers from coming to St. Anne, as they claim. This came up actually in our last episode. Uh, and I think, Brandon, you you think that they really are doing that. Is that fair? That's fair. I think that is complete nonsense. 
and and in fact, you've already given me the evidence uh, tonight for why that's nonsense, which is that uh, we're talking about space travel. The last shadow child in this group, Wolf, can't suddenly let that screen down. And then in a matter of 90 seconds or so, can a spacecraft appear on the surface of the planet that's simply not possible and so people have already had to have been coming here and maybe they were coming because they know that san qua exists so i will give that but they also already have to have been planning to land something on saint anne because there are orbital mechanics uh, and physics at play in whether or not you can successfully do that from where you are uh, above the surface of the planet or within the solar system or not. So this cannot be an instantaneous thing. Someone already for at least several hours, if not days, weeks, years, decades, was planning on landing on this planet by the time we get to the end of this story. I appreciate your attempt to dismantle my reading here, but it's just (laughs) not going to fly with me right now. I think think that that is all perfectly well within the realm of possibility with my reading as well, which is that, of course, it's not just Wolf who turns it off the screen. It's that the Shadow Children population has been diminishing for perhaps as much as two decades. They're not interested in reproducing. They don't seem to make new children. Maybe there are a few. Their numbers are dwindling. And so they are losing their ability to keep the screen as strong as it once was. But they insist upon the delusion that they is as strong and they can turn ships away and keep people from coming to the planet, even though they know they're losing the ability. They, these shadow children have no problem with living in a world of total illusion. I'm still not convinced. So we'll just kick this one to the, to the wolf pack <laughs> yeah. and see what, see what they think about this. Just one more question about the shadow children before we get back on the topic of abos. And, and this is the question about the, the drug, does this drug induce in them the state that St. John of the Cross advocates in the epigram? I mean, they're using that language. They're saying that they have become like God as a result of using this drug. Are they fulfilling that? I think that's more of a case of the the devil quoting scripture when they say that they've become like God. It is the snake in the Garden of Eden. It's the language that that creature uses to tempt uh, Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I think what Wolf is doing is that by giving us an epigram about uh, spiritual oneness and unity with God at the opening, and then contrasting it with the expedience that the culture is using to try to achieve some higher conscious state, by putting those in contrast, he's really saying that there's no easy way to get the things you're looking for. St. John of the Cross is doing this through self-abnegation, through denying himself pleasures and expedient solutions, and by meditating, by contemplating, by fasting, um, by experiencing the darkness of his own soul, the void that is within him. And the shadow children are in a state of constant pleasure and distraction, even to a maniacal degree. And I think that that is really what's happening. Yeah, this is not abnegation. It is 
the purest form of hedonism. So it is a complete inversion of what those lines actually tell us that we're supposed to do. So this is a, a false accomplishment, I think, as well. Well, on that note, let's just move very quickly into talking about about abos. We want to talk about their physiology, their uh, ability to to mimic all sorts of life forms and even uh, non-living objects in their environment. This this pleomorphism, this uh, idea that they can have many different shapes. And I think before we start, let's just review what the text says so that we're not making assumptions about our memory of what the text says. Uh, I've gone ahead and made some notes about things that we see abos doing, abo bodies doing in the text uh, in a couple different categories. One first one is reproduction and sex. Right off the bat, and we talked about this, that there's no sense that sex is required for reproduction in that opening paragraph. Really, that whole opening section of the text is a, the most masterful use of the passive voice, I think, that I've ever encountered uh, to, to being used to obscure information. And the line is, it came to her as it comes to women, that giving birth is just a natural occurrence that happens at a, a certain age. Uh, seven girls waiting uh, also has this bizarre line when she and Sandwalker meet at the Oasis tree where she says that she knows that this tree is the father of Mary Pink Butterflies because the tree told her in a dream a long time ago. Sandwalker's like, yeah, of course, we're all engendered in women by trees. This is also a little bit complicated, though, by the fact that he calls his erection a tree. Uh, thinking about growth and development of the abos, we know that babies grow and that they become adults. Childhood is clearly a time before becoming capable of, of reproducing. Uh, we see that testicles are related to the growth of facial hair in males. We know this because of the, the castration of east wind. I think it is fair to say, uh, moving on to thinking about anatomy, I think it's fair to say that these are humanoid creatures, though you're right. Some of them may actually look like spacesuits and not like actual humans. Uh, but we are also told that they have their brains in their thorax. So that might be, in some sense, a, a superficial uh, resemblance and, and not uh, not any deeper than that. So now we get to the, the really exciting part of Abos, right, which is the, the shape shifting. We are told by the old wise one in the pit, he says, You come of a race of shape changers, like those we called werewolves in our old home. When we came, some of you looked like every beast, and some were of fantastic forms inspired by the clouds, or by lava flows, or water. Okay, and then we get the bit about them taking on the appearance of, of humans. We're also told that one an initial state of the abos when the shadow children arrived is that they were mostly long and lived in holes between the roots of trees. And then we also have this bit that you, you already brought up, Brandon, uh, about people using their hands whenever they had hands, only to take food. Uh, so that's what we learn about the, the shape shifting. So I just have a couple questions that are, arise from these passages in the text. And, and the first of them is, what would it actually mean for an animal to have the form of a cloud or a lava flow? This is a great question because this will just bring us right back into the conversation about substances. Um, so when you talk about reproduction, uh, for a, cre a, a creature like the abos were, we're talking about how does the child really come out? In what form? Does it automatically come out looking like its parent? I think we see that that's the case here. And if we follow that back, this is really a matter of 
how is a thing a thing? How is it the case that the th- a thing is a thing? It could be that um, the abos that are imitating clouds, if they have a child, it produces another cloud-like thing. But that would be more like that would be more like asexual reproduction, right? Like I can't imagine a scenario where like clouds are overlaid one another or passing through one another, and a child comes out. And and how this relates to substances is like. You know, at, at what point does uh, uh, you know a table end? I'll use that, and and what does the next atom over know that it's empty air or a dust molecule or a dust mote? Like how how do things cohere really in a world where any arrangement of atoms could really be anything? What is the what are the rules behind that sort of reproduction? And perhaps this world was just chaotic, truly chaotic, where the arrival of humans was really the arrival, the symbolic arrival of order in some way, the same way that God creates the heavens and the earth out of Genesis out of the void, and it's up to the humans to create order. And as they begin, as the humans begin to order this planet, the abos fall under begin to classify themselves as humans. And this is like a problem of colonialism as well, is when how, when you begin classifying another people and studying them and understanding what their practices are, there's automatically a certain type of cross-contamination, which I think is a big part of this story. This imitation is troubling to both parties. I don't know if that answered the question, but to me, this is, again, another instance of the kind of essential focus on substance and how particles cohere to form a thing, even a tree, which is many things. How how does one atom know it's part of a tree and one not? No is a weird word to use there, but to me, that's kind of what Wolf is looking at here. And that's such an alien concept that the humans are unable to deal with it. Yeah, of course, the unanswered questions about what is actually happening with abophysiology here are uh, countless. They're innumerable. But I want to gravitate towards the use of the word animal. If the shadow children, as we assume, are a scientific people, they, they clearly evidence this in a number of other capacities, then when they decide to label the life form that they encounter here, Uh, an animal rather than a plant or a fungus or a bacteria, the thing that they mean it's capable of doing is sexually reproducing, right? That's one of the fundamental distinctions between an animal and other types of life forms. So for, for me, I don't think that them appearing like clouds or like lava flows or water means that they are no longer animal bodies and that they don't have sexual organs and are not sexually reproducing. I think that's exactly what's going on. I think that they are taking on uh, the the form of, of that, that they, they are resembling that as perhaps a type of camouflage or any other type of adaptive strategies to the environment that they live in, but that they are still animal bodies that sexually reproduce and also need to, to consume food somehow. So on this same note, I think there's a question that I want to address, though I think you've already given your answer, Brandon, which is whether or not the hill people and the marshmen, these abos who have taken on a humanoid form, are still able to change their form. Do you think that they're still able to or not? I don't think so, but I think they have a cultural memory of it. And I don't know that there's any great way to answer this question, but I think that they do still have this capability. I'm not sure that this is 
something that these animals have ever been conscious of doing to begin with. That to me, it seems like it's an an adaptation. It's a, a strategy to survive in a harsh environment and to to outcompete the other creatures that are trying to get your food source, uh, get your shelters, and occupy the same space that you are. There's no indication that abos are changing their form from a cloud to a lava flow to a worm thing in the roots of the trees. It really appears that they mostly just stay in this form for their whole lifetime and that they have taken that form because they have been born into and grown up in an environment in which that is the best form for survival. And of course, I think we know, right, that that the Homo sapiens form is pretty well adapted to survival. We have conquered this planet. We are going to conquer our own solar system and almost certainly will move out among the stars because we are the most successful life form on this planet. I think it's fair to assume that we would be among the most successful life forms on another planet. So there doesn't seem to be any need then, now that the Abos are capable of having this form, for them to change again. That's one thing I'll say about that, uh, just in terms of not precluding their ability to do that. But I do actually also think that Sandwalker is going to the priest in the cave to learn about this ability. I do actually think that something physiologically changes in him when he is in the river going to the ocean and he is calling on this image of the otter. And I think also something similar is happening when he is uh, walking in the marsh and envisioning uh, a long-legged shorebird. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair reading, but I am still kind of looking for connections to Vale's hypothesis that lead to the extinction of the abos, which is that they lose their ability to adapt. And that is in part what leads to their extinction. And I think that Vale's hypothesis, as it's presented in Fifth Head of Cerberus, is wrong without any kind of context. But I think Wolf is making a move here, much like what Proust does in In Search of Lost Time, which is reframing the question and giving us new evidence with which to examine information that we already have that really puts it in a new light. I read those moments that you read as shape-shifting, as receiving a cultural memory from the spiritual leader of the people. Well, so far, I think we've agreed on one of five questions. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Uh, I really, really am looking forward to having listeners uh, chime in here to tell us we're both wrong and that the answer is actually something we didn't even think of. Uh, let's. We've got one last question here about abophysiology before we move on to uh, some other things about abos. And this is the question of whether or not the abos really can send their consciousnesses away from their bodies before we tackle that question, though, something that surprisingly has not actually come up at all in any of our earlier conversations, which is that this is something that exists within the Maori folk tradition of New Zealand. Uh, again, we talked last time about Australian aboriginals and the long dreaming and how maybe that's actually something that European anthropologists kind of made up for them. Uh, that might also be true here about the Maori idea that they can send their consciousnesses out. But if you were reading a book about Maori people in the 1960s or earlier, you would have encountered this. And so this is something Wolf would think is coming from that tradition. Uh, that said, though, Brandon, do you think this is something that the Abos really can do? Or is this just something they think they can do? I really don't think that they can do it. I think all the textual evidence that we get for there being ghosts or spirits or spirits leaving the body in this story is tethered to the planet 
or a twin consciousness or something like that, um, or the product of a group mind. So we have, I'm thinking of the ghost in the priest's cave, the shared dreaming of Sandwalker and Eastwind, which is part of what gets Eastwind in trouble while he's trying to learn about starwalking. We also have this sense that anybody who can send their consciousness to the stars that is revealed to the hill people is killed. That is a, a being that is killed. It's driven off a cliff. Though somehow the marshmen are able to take whomever from the hill people and turn them into a star walker. So I'm a little bit torn on it, but just if I'm just going with the text and not the beliefs of the people, the drowning rituals to appease God so he can read the messages, that this is the first, that in this story we're seeing the first attempt to get a consciousness into the sky, Sandwalkers, so that Eastwind can see from the star's perspective, because I don't think anybody's been able to do that before. So I think that this is kind of the Hail Mary of what is has been a failed belief and practice of these people. Sandwalker himself thinks that that's ludicrous, though he does also think that he himself can send his consciousness out roaming around the surface of St. Anne just fine. Right, and it does it automatically if he falls asleep during the day. I think maybe this is the importance of sleeping places, which is a puzzle. A question I've had in the story is why are sleeping places so important? And it's so that your mind doesn't roam when you sleep, that just flinging yourself on the dirt and taking a nap causes your consciousness to wander, that they need some contact with the earth um, in order to keep their souls within their bodies. Yeah, to me, this is a puzzle that I, I, I don't really know how to solve. So I think we'll just uh, ask listeners to tell us where we've gone wrong. And uh, let's move on to the next question that we've got about abos. This, to me, is a really important question about what is it that's that's happened with the arrival of humans on St. Anne. And the question is this, were the abos already sentient before the arrival of the, the shadow children? Were these animals in the shape of a cloud or a lava flow, these worms at the roots of trees, were they sentient creatures? I don't, I don't have a strong answer, a strong opinion about this, because it could really go any way, either way. My inclination is that they were not conscious in the way we're talking about consciousness in the story. I think they did have souls, though. I think they had some sort of spiritual adaptation that is evidenced by the presence of the drug on the planet. We know that the reason why drugs are effective for humans is because we have receptors for them already in our brains. And this is an adaptation to our environment. And my suspicion is, is that this drug that they stay away from, that the hill people stay away from, is dangerous, particularly because they have these inborn, innate uh, spiritual presences on, on the planet. And that that's an adaptation to the things that are in the environment. I also don't think they're... Con I think another question that's being raised by this question is kind of the... is kind of the touring machine question. If you can get somebody to imitate you so well, it has a life form, it can imitate your words, it can even learn how to use the words that you're using, does that mean it was conscious beforehand? Are they just conscious enough to kind of fool the humans and do they adapt to that new 
levels of imitation with new interactions over time. That's kind of my reading is that the humans arrived and were sufficiently complex that the ability for the abos to imitate them was enough for this massive shift to take place the same way we'd think like of a singularity event taking place with a computer. That's what I'm leaning towards with my reading of this story. So then the sentience that we see in the abos here in the story, if that's something that they developed only through contact with the humans as a result of their, their mimicry of humans, does that mean then that sentience is tied to the particular physiological features of humans, that it's tied to brains? How do they actually get the sentience, I guess, is my question. I'm saying that these are two really complex life forms. One has what we talk about in terms of consciousness and sentience, that's the humans, and the other one did not. But through imitation and already a complex biology, they continue to imitate more and more of what they understood and their brains adapted. I think that this is embodiment in some way that's taking place. There is something tied to human beings that is about embodiment and physicality that has made us great adapters to the world. I guess what I'm not understanding is is where you think the sentience comes into it. And I, I guess, is this something that they get simply because they have copied human physiology? Or is it something that they get because they're copying human behavior? Or maybe a third option is, is their mimicry not merely physiological? Are they able to actually copy our souls in, in some way? So I don't want to say that they are able to copy the souls of humans. I don't think that that's what we're seeing in this story. But yes, I am saying that the mimicry is what produced sentience. It's not just a, f- a f- it's not just a mimicry of form, but also of behavior. And the old wise one seems to think that part of the reasons why the abos haven't built anything, haven't made any permanent settlements, haven't created agriculture, is because they never imitated humans when humans were using tools and doing these things. There is some point of transition where the humans that came to St. Anne first, maybe two generations in, when they realized they were stranded there, began becoming addicted to this drug while the abos were beginning to imitate them. And that's where we see this use of hands when they had hands. The shadow children say the same thing. We take, we use our hands to take the plants from the like fruits from the trees and things like that. So there, at some point this transition happened, this full mimicry while the humans were declining in their innovation, in their survival, while they were becoming complacent as a result of the use of the drug. And that at least is the explanation that the old wise one gives as to why the abos have not advanced beyond the humans in imitating them. How did they get their language then? That's another question that I have. Is this something that they actually just learn from the colonists? 
is this something that they're mimicking, right? That's not actually taught to them or, or is this, if they develop this language from some other way? I mean, I think they learned it from the colonists. I think that's part of imitating behavior is imitating language. And they continue to get new language inputs from their interactions with the shadow children and perhaps from one another. Once they get language, they're adapted to use it. So I don't think that their language faculty is limited in the same way their their imitation of behavior has limited them. Do you think that the shadow children purposefully taught the abos their language? Yes. Yeah, I'm skeptical of that. And and the reason for this is that the shadow children that we meet here in this story keep calling them animals and talk about how it's okay to eat them, that they're lesser life forms. I think you're teaching something to speak is probably the most humanizing thing that we could do. I mean, how how you know, would we be eating animals? Would we even be keeping dogs and cats as pets if they suddenly could speak to us? I think that would change our whole conception of it. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm now just describing the exact plot of the Every Planet of the Apes movie, which really right. is about but, this question. But you have to understand, I mean, I'm really committed to this idea that this is happening at a transition point, that it did take time for both the abos and the humans to transition into their current state. I'm suggesting two generations or so. When they began fully imitating the humans, there was enough of a memory left on the humans' part to perhaps do what they were there to do, proselytize John and Mary. Maybe they only saw... We see that their names are limited in that way, that they name people mostly after what's going on in the environment, but they are confused about man and woman. Man is John and woman is Mary. And so that could be because they met a man and a woman and that was the contact and everybody's imitating those two people. Right. I think, again, to me, that suggests a kind of limited contact where I I think that everything that the Abos are exhibiting here is not something that was taught to them by colonists, by the shadow children, but is something that they learned from observing them uh, potentially at a at a distance. And this is why they misunderstand what John and Mary are. It is also why they have some bits of Christianity right and other bits of it totally wrong. Why these two groups have uh, have done that differently. In fact, to me, I think this suggests not an environment in which they were not being taught anything uh, very explicitly, but have picked all of this up uh, through observation. Yeah, I think that's really fair. And I'm willing to buy that 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Not a hill that either of us is going to die on here tonight. Uh, but I think we might be getting into a question here where we, we might butt heads a, a little bit. Uh, and this is the question of what is happening at the end. And this is about the eyes, right? The, something happens with the eyes of this last shadow child here, Wolf, right? Where suddenly he just doesn't have any eyes. And then Sandwalker becomes very, very concerned about what color his eyes are and we are told that they're green i mean of course they're green all eyes are green that's the color eyes are what's up with this what why is this in the story what's going on here this is in the story i think to hint to us about what type of artifact this is and where the truth of this story lies if there's any truth in it at all we know that 
John V. Marsh's eyes are perfectly green without any flecks of brown in them. That's one layer of what's going on here is the question of, is John V. Marsh an abo? And if so, was there an, a real John V. Marsh? And is he the one writing this story about his trying to hint to people about the real identity of what's going on here? Are there people still capable of imitating form? And if they are so advanced at it at this point, would anyone know the difference? Particularly on a planet like San Qua, when maybe everybody is a copy of the the members of the House du Chien, the Maison du Chien. So I think that's one thing that's going on here. This is a clue about John V. Marsh's identity in some way, signaling something that hopefully I think we're going to get an answer for in VRT. Do you think that the eye color has changed? Do you think that they weren't actually green before and that this is meant to signal to us that there's been somehow in these last few moments a physiological change within the people here at the shore as as aliens are descending and that they don't recognize that a change has happened? Or do you think they've always been green? I think it's a, meant to be a certain type of enlightenment. It's an awakening. It It is meant also to represent that the shadow children have done more than just screened the minds and turned back the ships of other humans, that they have done some meddling in the minds of the abos as well, perhaps to keep them in their state. Perhaps it's not a problem of imitation or innovation or creativity on the parts of the abos at all. Perhaps it's that the songs of the shadow children confuse and confound the minds of the abos and that when they are done when they realize the only way that they can live as individuals that they can continue their life in the short term is by revealing the nature of the world to the people they have hidden it from and i think that's also what's going on here yeah i think that's a lot more plausible than the the reading that i had not the reading that i had this time but the reading i had uh, a decade or more ago when i read this story the first time which was that i thought this was signaling a physiological change in response to the presence of a new life form on the on the planet in, in their midst i don't know how that would actually work it's no indication they can see that person's eyes why would they change but that was something that i inferred in my initial reading uh, a very long time ago i don't think it's substantiated in the text but it, i almost can't get it out of my head <laughs> i think it's possible i think it's as plausible at least as the fact that the marshmen are, are all wearing spacesuits which is kind of how I like to read this book and secretly how I've been reading it the whole time. Yeah, I think you are the only person with that reading and everyone else is going to think you're a huge weirdo, but I think that it's awesome. Uh, Pay attention to the language of the story. (laughs) And when I say pay attention to the text, I'm referring specifically to the section in this story about the story of how the abos got the shape of humans from the Just So story, which is that they took off their appearance in the river and he's thinking specifically, Sandwalker is thinking specifically of the ornaments that some people in his group wear and then went and put it on. And maybe some of the disgust that the Hill people have for the Marshmen is that they are wearing a different appearance, that their appearance is not the pure form. 
I really do love this idea. I know I just made fun of you for it, but I actually really do love it. I think it's a kind of a brilliant reading. <laughs> All right. Well, we are now, as as we must and as we always do, uh, turn our sights on the appearances of Christianity here in this text. Now, we made a pretty big deal about this a few episodes ago when we were talking about the the Trinity and God's place in the cosmos as a, a type of theological dispute between the hill people and the marshmen. We won't belabor that or necessarily revisit that here. I want to jump straight in then to talking about occurrences of episodes from the Christ story that we find in this text. One we have talked about already, but I think we didn't maybe do the best job of it when we did, and I want to do a better job of it. And that's talking about the John and Mary names. I had posed the the question in our very first episode, or perhaps our second episode here on a story of which scriptural Johns and Marys were meant. Uh, I, in particular, said something very dumb, which was I took it as given that Mary meant the virgin. But of course, that doesn't necessarily have to be true. There is the significant person of Mary Magdalene in the text of the Christ story. Uh, So let's just talk about it. Which Mary, which John? Up until this point, we've been treating this text as if what is given in it is is somehow uh, true to the world itself. And I think that that is not necessarily the case. So I think that that's actually a great question to raise because it it switches the mode in which we've been reading the story and discussing the story up until this point. Right. And this is the last set of questions we're going to have before we get into the question of the metatextuality of this story. So I think that we can distance ourselves from treating this story as an artifact of this world and now be thinking about it as an artifact from Wolf's mind or Wolf's typewriter. So we have John, the beloved, the friend of Christ himself. We have John the Baptist, which is probably more in line with if we're going to talk about the importance of the name John in modern literature and early postmodern literature, it's almost always John the Baptist, the, the precursor, the one, the voice of one in, in the wilderness preparing the way for something new. Anytime you see Jean Baptista or uh, John Baptist or whatever in, in European literature, um, you need to be looking for the figure that comes after them in their place. And I think that this story, in in the way that this is a story about something coming after. It doesn't have to be a Christ tale. We don't need to make it about Christ's coming, um, though this story desperately does need some <laughs> some saving grace in it. Um, I think that John, in this sense, in Wolf's mind, or at least in the mind of a writer who's using this Christian symbolism, would be more of the precursor figure than the beloved, the brother of Christ, something like that. I actually think that this is John the Apostle, who is, as you say, called the beloved disciple. Um, he's typically also believed by Christians to be the John who wrote the Gospel of John uh, as well. And so he's identical to someone called John the Evangelist. Uh, these are just different uh, ascriptions, different uh, behaviors given to the same the same figure. And the reason that I think this is actually probably John the Apostle is that though this is no longer a sanctioned belief in any Christian church that I'm aware of, many ancient and medieval Christians believed that John the Apostle 
was bodily assumed into heaven, right? So when he died, uh, his body also went to heaven, not just his soul, which is also what happens to, to Christ. That's not something people believe anymore, but this is something that millions of Christians in the past have believed. Uh, it's in all sorts of ancient and, and medieval literature. In fact, it, it is actually addressed in Dante in, in the Divine Comedy. What is still true in Christianity is that uh, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Christ, is someone who was bodily received into heaven. She and Christ are the only two figures who are believed by Christians today uh, to have undergone that. But I think that that connection between Mary and John the Apostle, and and clearly Wolf has Dante on his mind, so this is a story that he's aware of, uh, and given that bodies, uh, substance, souls are the number one motif of this story, I think those are the two figures who are meant there is one other figure in in the Bible who John the Baptist is confused with, which is the prophet Elijah, which was another person who was bodily received into heaven, who was taken up. And they, uh, people in the New Testament, uh, as it's recorded, are asking John the Baptist, are you Elijah returned? And so that was also another piece here. So if we're talking about bodies and souls being um, indivisible in this sense, then I think John the Baptist still fits that that mold, that kind of confusion of personality that that we're dealing with. There's also, of course, John uh, who wrote the Book of Revelation, mind whose mind was really separated from his body. He was taken into heaven as a soul to see the end times, much in the way John Sandwalker himself is receiving these messages of the end of the cosmos from this spiritual being. So I don't know, it could be any of them. Yeah, it absolutely could. I mean, we've, we've certainly seen that baptism is important. And, and my initial reading was to think of this as being John the Baptist as well. It wasn't until we started thinking very much about Dante that I changed my mind about that. Uh, do you have an argument for Mary being Mary Magdalene rather than the Virgin Mary. I I don't have one. To me, it's not used enough, and there's not enough women doing things in this story to have it be other than kind of a woman's Catholic name. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would really love someone to to make that argument for us on the on the forum, though. This is probably actually the single thing I'm most interested in. Though, of course, as we said before, Mark Aramini thinks that this is all a big mistake, that it's meant to be many and not Mary. And I'm looking forward to getting a chance to actually talk with him on the air about that when we have finished the book altogether. Well, let's move on to, to talking about Immaculate Conception. I, I just have a couple questions about whether or not this is something that we see in the text. And one of these is that there does seem to me to be an awful lot of evidence that he, humanoid creatures are not sexually reproducing with each other in the text to make more humanoid creatures. And it's totally possible, it seems to really even be implied in the opening of the story, that Cedar Branch's waving has not had sex with anyone in order to get pregnant with her twin boys. She is also described as having a halo around her head, and we did mention this in that episode it is a dark halo because her hair is dark. And you, you took that to mean that it was evil. I don't think so. I don't think that it is evil. I, I think she might actually meant to be something of a Virgin Mary character. I don't buy it. Uh, I, I'm not saying she's evil, but I'm saying that this story is not about anything particularly 
good happening. It's not a story that requires the presence of saints in any way. We do have the importance of like hair washing and cleanliness and purity as rituals. The seven girls waiting, having her cleaned her hair in the pool is like an attractive sort of feature. I I am of the belief that um, evidence of sexual reproduction are all over this story. Um, That the belief that trees are the fathers of children is a cultural belief and it frees them up to engage in sexual activity freely without a full understanding of the consequences. And I don't know that you're wrong about that, but I do think it's important that they really don't seem to think that men and women having sex with each other is how babies are made. But the people that we meet in this story genuinely believe that that's what's going on. And I don't know how to do anything other than to take them at their word, to to treat their culture with, I don't know, respect and dignity and think that they might actually know more about what's going on than I do. I think if you take my reading at face value of this story, they have a memory of being different types of species and maybe imitated the way those species reproduce. Um, and so there may have been a time when they're in the roots of trees and all this this sort of thing that it, the tree was the biggest figure. It was the father figure. It was a symbol of fatherhood in some way that they are now carrying with them as a cultural memory. The same way I think the being able to become a ghost is a, is a cultural memory. They still see ghosts because there are still spirits, disembodied spirits wandering around, but I don't know for how much longer in this story that that would take place because perhaps they are unable to do that anymore. Well, let's leave behind my attempt to get you to consider that someone might be the Virgin Mary in this text. Uh, I want to talk now about sycamore trees. Sycamore trees are important in the the Christ story. They appear uh, in the Gospel of Luke at 19.4. There's an evil tax collector and sinner named Uh, Zacchaeus, Uh, he climbs a sycamore tree so that he can see Christ's arrival into Jericho. Christ sees him and tells him to get down from the tree and commands him to to take him to his house for dinner. Uh, And climbing a sycamore is something of a, a metaphor now for searching for Christ and despite your own villainy and, and your sinfulness being welcomed and, and received by Christ and, and treated well. So that's scripture. Here in the text of a story, in Sandwalker's first dream swap with Eastwind, he's lying on a raft in shallow water, looking up at the sky through a broad ring of sycamore trees, and, and he's trying to learn something about the stars, or from the stars, really, uh, at that point. And then we see the sycamore trees again in the story when their roots are used as whips to kill last voice. Uh, do you think that there's anything going on there? Yeah, I hadn't thought to make any any connection between uh, the story from Luke and the symbol of the sycamore tree in this story. But I do think that perhaps it indicates the earnestness, though wrongheadedness, of the Marshmen's attempt to seek and know the mind of God to better themselves so that they can improve. If they can imitate man, the next thing would be to imitate God. And God is not present on the planet any longer, though he used to be. And that's the story they have. 
And so they need to figure out a way to imitate God to achieve the next step in their ascension as species. Yeah, that's actually a really great reading of this. And and this also isn't something I don't think I would have thought of, except that, you know, last time we talked to Mark Aramini about the fifth head of Cerberus, he showed us that Wolf had something very specific and precise in mind when he invoked Lombard poplars in the fifth head of Cerberus. So I have to believe that when he's invoking a specific type of tree in this story, he has something in mind as well. And this, yeah, climbing up to get a better vantage point. I mean, that is what these people are doing. Uh, it's interesting, though, that in Scripture, in, in Luke, as the person who does this is rewarded for doing this. It's a good thing. But here, it, it does not seem to be. It seems to be heretical. I, I don't know what to do with that, but it's quite interesting. I think we can just tie that to the theme of this story being about the wrong ways in which people go about seeking unity with God. All three of these cultures do, and it brings about their ultimate demise. Well, I want to take a look at these sycamore roots being used to whip last voice to death here. And I want to think about what that might tell us about the Christ story and how these two things might work together. So in the Gospels, Christ is flogged before he is crucified. And uh, Gene Wolfe also has a particular reading of the place of whips in the Christ story. In in one of the interviews in Shadows of the New Sun, uh, Wolfe says that the, the only thing that the Gospels say Christ made is a whip, and that because of that, therefore, Christ knew what it was to torture people as much as what it was like to be tortured by people. Now, to me, this is a troubling reading of the text. It probably is for you as well. Uh, I mean, for one thing, there's Christ is a, a preacher of peace. He tells people to turn the other cheek, not to whip each other. Uh, but it also does actually seem to be a pretty serious misreading of the text. And this is John 2.15, by the way. Uh, the text uh, here says that Christ uses this whip to drive sheep and cows from the market. There's nothing in this passage that indicates that Christ did violence to people. There's actually not even anything in the text that indicates he did violence to the animals, right? He may have been cracking the whip, making the noise with it to scare them without striking them. So I think Wolf's reading of this is several steps removed from what the text actually says. And obviously, we're going to be taking this up again when we get to, you know, that, I don't know, big book that Wolf wrote that's about a torturer, uh, Book of the New Sun. Uh, but a question that I have, and this, of course, is, is, is going to be my, my trademark question, is there a Christ figure in this story? I don't see one in this story. And to me, this making of whips out of the sycamore of destroying the symbol of ascension, if that's how we're reading it, of violating the tree so easily. I think this is all a stage, stages of San Walker's descent into becoming the violent brute. He, he, he loses his way, really, that he violates a tree without thinking second, having a second thought about it. I think it what we're seeing in my reading of this again is that as Sandwalker becomes more of a shadow friend, which is a telling name, it's not a light friend, he, he loses more and more of himself. He actually, it's not just that he contributes to the mind of the group norm, it's that it is having another effect on him, maybe like the poisonous bite, but of the soul. 
And so he loses his ability to recognize the spirit of the world, the spirit in the trees and different things. And I think that that is something we see throughout the story. The first tree he encounters is in the oasis where it has life. The next one, he's not sure. And at the end, he's destroying a tree to make a weapon. So that's kind of how I see this descent here. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that there's any way to view this story optimistically. I mean, it is perhaps something of a hero's journey, but it doesn't end well. At the end of the story, I'm not sure that I like Sandwalker very much. Uh, I feel for him. I feel for all of the characters in this story, but he does not seem to me to be the uh, you know Prince of Peace, the Son of God. He doesn't seem to me to be any of those things, and and Last Voice doesn't seem to be any of those things either. I suppose the other figure who features in this scene who could be a candidate for this is Eastwind. I'm just not sure that we know enough about Eastwind to really take him seriously as a kind of Christ figure here. I just don't think there's one in this story. I think this is a this is a story about the uh, tragic end of a people that's brought about by their own carelessness, their lack of respect for one another, their lack of recognition of dignity in themselves or other species like them, and their ultimately the the violation of nature and this could just be a metaphor at the end of the day this whole story there's one more thing i want to ask you about uh, in terms of things that we might see in the uh, the christ story here parallels with the christ story we might see in this story uh, and that is this this ghost priest in the cave you know in scripture when someone goes to a cave to talk to someone who's actually dead and receive important wisdom from that person that person is Christ, right? That is the resurrected Jesus three days after being crucified. Uh, This cave is called Thunder Always, and of course, Thunder is the voice of God in the Old Testament. I mean, it's not always, not every place there's the voice of God as it described as Thunder, but it frequently is, and especially in the prophetic books. The ghost priest here doesn't really feature all that heavily in this story, but to me, that actually might be an indicator that he's this kind of outside presence, that this might actually meant to be the voice of the true God speaking to Sandwalker in very much the way that the entire plot of the Book of the Long Sun is about someone suddenly experiencing the voice of God intruding into another religion that has some of the trappings of Christianity. Again, I just, I really don't read it that way. Ghosts are like a norm of this culture. And I see the priest in the cave as having spiritual significance. And he does, you know, resurrect this otter in the dream world. Um, And we see the importance and reality of dreams and the interaction between the spirits in dreams. But um, I think that the mission he ultimately sends Sandwalker on, if he is God with the characteristics of the Christian God, uh, omni omniscience, omni benevolence, things like that, that that would not be something God would do unless this is a story about uh, God being angry with his creation and wishing to destroy it. Right. When I was thinking about the potential for this, what I was thinking about was whether or not the thing that's actually important in this story is that Sandwalker is there when the colonists arrive. I have no idea why that might be because our story ends at that moment. But I did wonder if that wasn't ultimately what this story is actually about, that 
metatextually, perhaps, that this story is about how very important Abo person met the first English-speaking settler on St. Anne, and we all know the story of that, but here's the story of how that came to be, and it came to be because that Abbo Sandwalker was obeying the commands of God, and, well, we should all obey the commands of God when we hear them. Well, let's leave the Christ story behind and and move on to talking about the Adam and Eve story. Uh, we've talked a little bit about original sin uh, when we were going through the the different views on on uh, time and and the Trinity. Uh, we talked a little bit also about God walking in the Garden of Eden and how some of that same language is used uh, in describing the long dreaming. Uh, some of that language comes from the prophetic books of the Bible. You've done a great job of pointing out how how prominent lizards and serpents are in this story. And of course, that's the whole linchpin of getting humanity kicked out of the Garden of Eden is, you know, based on a serpent. It's because a serpent has tricked humans into consuming the food from a tree that they're not supposed to. Uh, We've seen how prominent trees are in this story. And also we've seen that people are consuming a plant that probably isn't good for them. That also makes them think that they are like God, which is what that fruit in the Garden of Eden is going to do. We've also talked about how we see baptism here and the how that baptism the washing of these hill people babies in the river is actually meant to wash those bits of the tree off of them and that's a clear parallel right with the the story of the garden of eden one thing that we haven't talked about enough i don't think is the shadow children actually being satan in this story uh, there's a couple places where we see this i mean it's just some obvious things right uh that They've made creatures in their image, and they claim to be like God because they have found this plant. Uh, But I wanted to look at some of the passages from the old wise one and actually look at some some direct parallels from Scripture, right, where Wolf is actually using the language from largely the Old Testament uh, and putting those phrases in the mouth of the old wise one. I think this is also going to help us when we get to our question of metatextuality as well. We know that the old wise one says, you know, we walked among you in power and majesty and might, hissing like a thousand serpents as we splashed down in your sea, stepping like conquerors when we strode ashore with burning lights in our fists and flame. And uh, there are a number of other claims that they make about uh, impressing their kind so that they looked like us, the being wrapped in terrible glory, withering glances, singing death to their enemies. Almost all of this language is directly from Scripture. Uh, Walking among you is uh, something from Leviticus. It's used at 26.12, in which God says, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you will be my people. Uh, Of course, the the becoming like us is from Genesis chapter 1. This is the first of the two creation stories in Genesis. There's an obvious but critical difference, right? Which is that in a story, it is the life forms that have the agency, right? They're impressed by the humans, and so they take their form. Uh, It's not that the image is being modeled. The humans are not actively creating, uh, right? So there's no explicit claim of creation there. Uh, But the rest of this language uh, in these three statements comes from two places in the Old Testament. Uh, The first is Psalm 104. And then the second place is the last several verses of chapter 16 of Judith, which is, which is also a psalm, right? These are, are, are songs that people sing. And both of these are retellings of the creation story, and, and they contain 
I don't know, many, most of the key phrases and words that we find coming out of this you know, spectral mouth of the old wise one here. And I think that what matters about this right now for our conversation is that although the old wise one doesn't lay claim to having created the abos, he is claiming all sorts of other powers that are the domain of God in these two texts. So the shadow children do seem to be Satan in this story. But if we think, as you do, that the shadow children are humans, we've become Satan somehow. I don't think this is the first time we've seen this in, in Wolf at all. Um, the, the, one of our practice episodes, I remember you asking me if the main character was the Antichrist in some way. Wolf used all this religious imagery and uh, looked at it from the light of of uh, somebody using it to gain power instead of being an imitator of Christ. Yes, I think Wolf is showing here humans as shades in in purgatory. I don't think I think they have, as in Dante's Purgatorio, they have perverted love. They have not done anything yet that would send them to hell to San Qua. But they are in a place where they have acted out of a perverse desire to love in a certain way. And this has led to their becoming shades. So I think that that is what we're seeing in this story. And I think just the light falling from the sky and the watching the stars, all of that is also that, that same imagery that these humans in their maybe naive corruption are now in the midst of corrupting another sentient species. Yeah, almost like the corruption is a disease, right? It's something that humans have carried with them out into the stars to other planets and are transmitting it to other life forms, which I think is very interesting because we talked in Alien Stones about whether or not humans might actually be the messengers of God out in the cosmos, bringing uh, the the gospel to creatures that haven't heard it. And, and we will see this again if we get to read La Bafana, uh, where, again, we get the Christ story showing up on another planet. This seems to be a, a particularly pessimistic view of that, uh, where previously I've associated Wolf with having an optimistic view of this. This is an odd story because we're seeing like a second chance happen here with the new colonist at the end and maybe the English speaking colonist and that this, what we see with the shadow children is that they have found a paradise to play in and have corrupted it. And in doing so corrupted all the creatures on it. And that is something that they carried with them. But we also know perhaps that they carried some religion with them, but they're like, the Pharisees. They didn't give people the, the keys to the kingdom. They gave them just enough to remain in the type of power they wanted to remain in. And this is explicitly condemned by Christ in the New Testament. Well, he just very nicely brought us back to Dante and the Divine Comedy. And I think we want to finish this section of the episode with that and asking, given that San Croix is hell, whether St. Anne is purgatory or whether it's paradise. Uh, before we answer that question, we should be clear that when Dante uses paradise, the paradiso, he means heaven. Uh, in English, when we say paradise, we mean the Garden of Eden, but that is explicitly in purgatory for Dante. Uh, so I guess the, the question is, is this purgatory or is this heaven? Yeah, I think in my reading, this is this is purgatory. These are the shades of purgatory who have 
given into one of the seven deadly sins, uh, gluttony, sloth, lust, maybe, um, and fed their desires instead of feeding their souls. And that is that perversion of love that is throughout uh, the purgatory. So that's what I think here. And because they are so, because the shadow children are so caught up in their subjective mind, they can convince themselves it's not that bad. They could be in paradise. And so they remain as they are. And that is also sloth, right? So there's another kind of deadly sin being demonstrated by the shadow children. And so that that leads me to think that what we're looking at is if this trilogy of novellas is somehow Wolf's defined comedy, we need to look for evidence of souls that are in heaven in the next book. And they, I think they'd have to be human because it is humans that are in hell in fifth out of Cerberus and it is humans that are in purgatory in a story by John V. Marsh. I'm not really sure at all what to expect in Verti along these lines. I mean, I think if we had a trinary planet system rather than a binary planet system, I think we'd be real clear uh, about what we're in store for. I'm, I'm less certain of that. Uh, it is interesting to me that uh, the, the Paradiso part of the divine comedy really is about traveling in space. It's, it's Dante traveling to the planets of our solar system, those that were known in the 14th century and seeing the different levels of heaven that are represented on those planets. That's clearly not something that Wolf is going to do in VRT, but I will be interested to see if we are getting creatures of light in some way or some other aspects of heaven to me, I didn't think that this was a story about shades in purgatory, though I, th- I think that's definitely here in the story. Uh, to me, this story seemed to be about an Eden, a Garden of Eden that is spoiled by humans, as you just suggested, uh, that the abos are diseased now. They're, they're corrupted by this contact with other creatures who have themselves been corrupted. The abos now have to toil, which is the the punishment that humans receive for listening to the serpent and consuming the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, We see them working very hard to find food. We see them suffering childbirth, which is the other price that that we have to pay for this. And even though Sandwalker refuses the product of this tree that makes you think you are like God, nonetheless, his people are being punished for original sin, even though it doesn't seem that they themselves have committed it. Right. I think Wolf must be saying something here about the caution with which we should be approaching our desire or mandate or whatever you'd like to call it to colonize the stars we take our problems with us and um i think that's absolutely demonstrated here is is this is the story of colonialism as well is that it was mixed up with missions of goodwill of improving the quality of lives of others but there's a real dark side to it as well and what remains uh at this point seems to mostly just have been the corruption, with people imitating the right behaviors, perhaps even of Christianity, without 
learning the innovations of the Western civilization without learning how to use their resources um, and to really stand up on their own as a people, but just to imitate the right behaviors in order to get into heaven in the next life, that that's the life that matters, not this one, because we want your stuff. Right. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to getting into VRT and seeing how this might all play out. If there is any hope for anyone we've met so far in either of these two stories. On that note, I think that we should address the question of the metatextuality of this. This is entitled A Story by John V. Marsh. Is this novella an account that is or, or contains something that is objectively true or objectively ish true within the world of this story or is this simply a fantasy story that john v marsh has written that he's hoping to send off to the magazine of science fiction and fantasy next month i really struggle with this question i think there are things that are meaningful in this story and true in a way that a scientific people don't talk about truth. I think the themes of the story are probably true to form of the maybe his theories about what happened to the extinction of the Abo people, uh, of the Abos of St. Anne. I think he is telling a, a morality tale in some way to the people that remain on the planet to remind them of how they got what they got. And I think he's trying to make some claim about himself in some way about where he's from so for me this is somewhere in the middle between a, a, a mythical story and uh, an anthropologist fieldwork and speculation but i hope in the next story vrt we will see the return of some of these symbols and images and events to give us new light for this context for the context of this story I don't think anything in this story has any relationship with the real St. Anne of the fifth head of Cerberus. There are a number of reasons why I think that's true, but they are mostly just about the, the language of this text. Uh, a couple, there, there, there are three main points that I have here. The first is that list of places that the shadow children think they might be from Texas and Poitem. Atlantis, Gondwana land being on this list uh, to me is absolutely absurd. But also some of these names on that list are things that number five says in the fifth head of Cerberus. And then of course, things that David says in the fifth head of Cerberus are also happening in this story. The author of a story by John V. Marsh has read the diary of number five. He has read the fifth head of Cerberus. This is his fan fiction about it. It is not an artifact from this world. Moreover, the heavy presence of language from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, from scriptural language, uh, uh, literal borrowing of phrases, but then also the heavy allusions suggest right that this is an artifice, that this is a story that someone who is familiar with these texts has written this story. The question that really I have about the metatextuality here is, how did John V. Marsh get a hold of number five's diary? I think that's the real question. 
I think you make some really excellent points about about what kind of text this is. I think you're absolutely right that it must be the case that John V. Marsh has has read Fifth Head of Cerberus, which makes Fifth Head of Cerberus a, a document that we know about. All of these texts are about documents in some way. And I think VRT from kind of what I flipped through is another text that is about documents, about what documents are in the world. And we even saw something like this in the changeling where like the changeling itself is written on paper that's hidden under a rock. Wolf is really interested in the, in the, the nature of the written word as an artifact in the world. And he's just doubling down on this. So we have to ask the question, what is the moral of the story? What type of story is John Marsh telling and why is he telling it? Is he still on St. Croix in hell and writing about how people bring hell with them wherever they go? Is he trapped? Maybe. Maybe something like that is what's going on. Right. This might actually be something that he's writing, you know, 25 years after the events in the fifth head of Cerberus, when he has, in fact, decided to stay on San Croix, take up that uh, position at one of the universities there at uh, a salary of his own choosing and uh, regrets it. He wishes he'd gone back to Earth, but he's stuck somehow. Maybe he's gotten married and has a family, just hates his life, but has responsibilities he can't walk away from. I don't know. This might be the artifact of his midlife crisis here. <laughs> that, that that could be. Well, I think now that we are uh, writing our own fan fiction about some fan fiction written by the author of the first story in the first place, it might be time to call it quits. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please head on over to the Clay Temple forums and uh, let us know about everything that we got wrong, uh, what your theories are, what your answers are about these puzzles, these mysteries, these unresolved questions. Uh, these are discussions, debates, arguments we're really looking forward to having. Yeah, and I think many of you will come to different conclusions, maybe even about the meaningfulness of this artifact itself. Next time, we'll be covering VRT, our first section of that, which is the final novella in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And as always, we'll be using the 1994 Orb edition. We'll be reading pages 145 to 161. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.